Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, today we have Dr. Daryl Bach with us here at Beeson Divinity School, and I'm looking forward to this conversation with Daryl. Uh, Daryl Bach is Research Professor of New Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary, an editor-at-large for Christianity Today, and he's also served as the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. He's written more than 20 books. He's a Renaissance person. And one of the things about Daryl that I admire so much is he's able to both be really at home and make a great contribution in the scholarly, academic kind of world, but also among us regular sorts of people. He can do both of those really well. So um, in case people don't really know you, Daryl, tell us who you are, where you come from, a little bit about your family, your background. Who are you? Well, I grew up in Houston, Texas. I was born in Calgary, Canada. My dad was in the oil business, so we actually had three of us who were born outside, well, two of us born outside the country, and no two of us of my four, I have three siblings, so the four of us in our family were born in the same city. Uh, even though we're within seven, well, nine years of one another. And so I had an older brother, older sister, younger sister growing up, and I was not raised in a Christian home. My family came out of a Jewish background, but they formally left Judaism right before I was born, announced that to the family, and we were immediately cut off. Um, that That's a part of my story down the road. Um, I came to the Lord in the middle of my um, time in college, between my freshman and sophomore year, after about five years of mostly Baptists witnessing to me pretty faithfully. Um, and the changed life of a, of a freshman roommate was really the key that kind of pushed the thing over the hump. Yeah. And uh, so by the time I came to the Lord, I, was, I had pretty well thought through it all. Um, uh, really had been drawn and so um, kind of hit the ground running. Um, started a Bible study at the University of Texas. The freshman year was at SMU. Um, at the University of Texas, we started off with six. By my senior year, we were putting 120 kids in all rooms of our apartment in order to have this fellowship and Bible study time. And so it was pretty clear that I was being called to, to ministry. Went to Dallas Seminary, then went on to... Uh, to Aberdeen to do doctoral work. I have a wife, been married uh, reasonably happily <laughs> for well over three for well over three decades. She still she still talks to me, so that's good. Uh, I have three children, two uh, daughters, and then a son. Two girls are married. Two grandkids. They live with us. The oldest family does, and with the grandkids, and so we get to see them every day, and that is really just a joy. That's great. Now, I know you have been an elder in a Bible church in Dallas and still are active in that church. Uh, what is a Bible church? And in your particular church, what's, what's maybe a little different about it? Well, Bible church really is, is a product of the, of the fundamentalist modernist controversy period and the movement towards a more conservative theology. And Dallas Seminary, which is the seminary where I teach, is non-denominational and they did plan a lot of churches that have been simply called Bible churches because they emphasize the teaching of the word in the church and so there's a lot of expository preaching that's associated with it there's a commitment to Sunday, adult Sunday school just a lot of very biblically grounded um, teaching and Bible churches take various shapes ours kind of has a brethren and Presbyterian flavor to it because of who the founders were, but you can find it in, in all shapes and sizes. Southern Baptists would be probably pretty comfortable. 
you know, Methodists would walk in and probably recognize a lot of what was going on. So it, it, the key thing is this focus on scripture. And then what we do that's a little bit unusual is we have tried to connect to the historical creeds and to the history of the church by what we do. So we do some liturgy in association with, with our service that relates to the Nicene Creed and the structure of the service is a very kind of traditional liturgical kind of structure where there's an approach to God that confesses sin and then you move into your worship. Um, and, um, and and so that's a little bit unusual for a Bible church. Most Bible churches are pretty low church. I wouldn't call us high church. and We're, we're just knee high. Uh, but, uh, Do Bible churches practice baptism for believers only? Yeah, yes. Be, it would be believer baptism and not that we wouldn't have any baptism for children. We, we will do uh, infant dedications and that kind of thing. Um, and, and, of course, the, the other distinctive of our church is we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. Oh, yeah. so, um, so the service traditionally ends with the Lord's table. Now, a lot of us know you because we see you on television from time to time. You're one of the talking heads giving us good biblical answers to some of the challenges that are out there, uh, particularly as it relates to Jesus, who Jesus was, Jesus research, uh, the New T- uh, Testament seminar that's been going on for a long time. Um, You've written a book, actually, about the Da Vinci Code, giving a kind of Christian and biblical response to it. Uh, we're flooded with these kinds of books. The Da Vinci Code, uh, Angels and Demons, Gospel of Judas, Bart Ehrman's many writings. Uh, I want you to say a little bit about your approach to that, but also why have these books achieved the uh, enormous popularity they have in our culture today? Well, let's do it in reverse order. I think the reason why they have achieved the popularity that they have is is that there is a lot of curiosity about Jesus, but it's not very biblically oriented curiosity, and there's in some circles a reaction to the biblical portrait of Jesus. And some of this material gives gives a rationale for going in that direction, and so it it gets hyped. Uh, and so we see it on history channels, cable, these books. We see it occasionally manifested in an adapted movie, which is starting to happen. It happens at a variety of levels. And the reason it's important, the reason I write about it, and the reason I talk to the church about it is, is that the standard Christian reaction to this is to just simply say, well, keep it at arm's length, it's liberal, it's not anything positive can come out of it. And they just people keep their distance and don't acquaint themselves with it, not recognizing that in it, there really is an opportunity to have a really good conversation about Jesus if you know what you're engaging. Mm-hmm. And so I talk to people about the difference between a conversation stopper and a conversation turner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so someone you're talking with someone about Jesus, they've caught the last thing on the cable, and maybe they saw something on the Gospel of Thomas or whatever, and they say to you, oh, did you see that show on the Gospel of Thomas? And, this, you know, they found a new gospel. There, there are new gospels that we didn't know about or whatever. And if you don't know anything about that, then that is a conversation stopper. That just stops the conversation right in its tracks. You probably say, well, I didn't see it, or I'm not interested, or I know a little bit about it, but it's not. there's nothing good coming out of that. Whatever that is, that's a conversation stopper. But if you know a little bit about that, if you know, yes, I know a little bit about the Gospel of Thomas. You ever read the Gospel of Thomas? Or do you know some of the things that it says that they tend not to tell you about? And they go, well, no. And and if you know a little of that, then all of a sudden you're into a conversation about who the real Jesus is. And so I, I think the church has, has risked mishandling this area to some degree by not teaching people how to engage well in these conversations, and there's material that can help them engage well. And so about 10 years ago, I set about the process of actually deciding to write in these various areas and help 
people in the church who had an interest in, or who were running into this. And you run into it because your neighbors watch television. They do watch television. You run into it because your children will go to college and take a university religious studies class in which it will come up. Uh, they'll go to the religion section of a Barnes & Noble and pick up a book. And the odds are if they pick up a book in this area, this is the kind of thing it's going to be saying. So there are a variety of ways that people get to this material if they're at all historically curious or on a spiritual search or whatever. My brother, uh, who is much older than I am, seven and a half years older than I am, in his 40s, went through a spiritual search, went to Borders, picked out a book, and it was called The Good Book, and it was written by a chaplain at Harvard University. And uh, and the moment he picked it out, I knew, well, this is going to be interesting. And, and I faced a choice. Do I tell him what I suspected about the book? Or do I kind of come alongside him in his journey? And so I offered to read it while he was reading it so we could interact over it. An invitation he was more than willing to take up, and uh, that launched us into a conversation. And years later, he came to the Lord. Wonderful. Uh, one, one of the figures that's gotten a lot of press is Mary Magdalene. And, of course, she plays in the Da Vinci Code and so forth. Who was Mary Magdalene, and what ought we to know about her? Well, she actually was a pretty uh, exemplary believer, the best that we can tell. She was the beneficiary of an exorcism by Jesus, and we're told that she was one of the women who traveled with the entourage that, uh, of ministry that Jesus had, and uh, that she was very supportive of the ministry financially, and, and of course, she's one of the people to whom Jesus appeared at the end. So she's obviously put forward as a rather significant disciple, female disciple. In fact, she could be considered one of, if not the premier female disciple in in the Gospels. That's all the scripture tells us. Now, on top of that, people have suggested all kinds of things. Jesus Christ Superstar years ago elevated her to Jesus' love interest. And then from there, in the Da Vinci Code, she got a promotion and becoming <laughs> Jesus' wife. So, uh, um, so, you know, so I guess if we wait around long enough, you know, who knows? Well, I don't know what the next step of promotion is. But anyway, um, so there have been all kinds of things said about her. There are some traditions uh, closely associating her with Jesus that come from the south of France that the Da Vinci Code did play off of. But none of these have biblical roots. And, uh, and so there's been an exaggeration of their relationship, which, again, our culture is drawn to because the idea of Jesus having a love interest just kind of fits the way our culture tends to think about relationships. Yeah. Now, here at our chapel at Beeson Divinity School, we have the Apostles' Creed uh, etched in stone, and we often recite it. And th- this year we had a conference called The Will to Believe and the Need for Creed, Evangelicals and the Nicene Faith, looking at the Nicene Creed and what that has to say about the Christian faith today. Now, you're a biblical scholar, and you've written a great commentary on, on Luke and many other things. Uh how do you deal with this creedal stuff? Is that a uh, how would you talk about that? And why should we uh, maybe be interested in it? Or is it, as many people have said, a, a detour, uh, a devolution away from what we have in the scriptures? Well, I, I think creeds are important because they tell us they give us snapshots of what the church has believed at certain points in its history, and what they believed in light of certain controversies. Usually, so it's an attempt to be really clear to state. The Christian faith. Now, granted, sometimes the language is hard for us in the modern world because they're dealing with technical philosophical controversies of the of the third or fourth century, that kind of thing. But but it's value. These are valuable snapshots. I think the church 
could do a better job of helping people bridge between what they see in the Bible and what they see in the creeds. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes we don't do such a good job of explaining how do we get from A to B. Um, But uh, creeds are helpful as affirmations of what a substantial body of Christians believed in a particular time. And they connect us not just with the first century church, but they connect us with other believers of other ages for that reason. And I think it's helpful not to think that you're, you know, you're the only one. You didn't invent Christianity. It has a little bit of a heritage before. You know, in Europe they have buildings where they have these signs established and then it gives the year. And, uh, um, and, and so the establishment's been around for a while and occasionally taking a look at what it is that the church has said about what it is the people of God believe, I think can be very, very helpful. Again, if those creeds are tightly connected to understanding what their biblical roots are. Now, most of our listeners belong to churches uh, that don't have a Daryl Bach in, in their membership. And they hear all of this stuff on television. They're confronted about it in conversation with their neighbors and their people at work. Uh, how should a Christian who is not an expert in the New Testament or early Christian origins approach these ideas that are out there all around us, uh, particularly with unbelieving friends who may be enamored of them? Well, I think there are two two keys. Uh, one is to set, is to tell people to do a better job of listening to their neighbors, and they're in the midst of their spiritual search or their spiritual opinions. I tell people that that if you will let someone talk about where they are spiritually and why they're there, that's important then you can get a better read on what is actually motivating them and what their background might be, what they might be reacting to or against in some cases. And that puts you in a better position to know actually how to minister to them as you have conversations with them and engage them. So the first would be to spend more time listening. We're so quick once the door opens to try and make sure that we do the deal mm-hmm. that that sometimes I think in the process we take out the interpersonal dynamics that actually build the trust that will allow you to say more than you could if someone gets the sense of, oh, well, they're just looking to have another notch on their evangelistic belt. So that would be the first thing, to listen. The second thing is is that there are resources out there, and they ought to tap into those resources to get the kind of information that will allow them to engage on these topics from a, from a positive point of view. Again, not to win an argument or, or, or so much to establish a point, but to have a conversation and to help people ponder that what they're hearing on TV or what they're seeing may not be the only way to look at the issues in question as important as they are. So, uh, so those would be the two, I think, key pieces of advice. Listen hard, and then secondly, use resources that are available. And there, there's a lot that's being written. I'm not the only one writing. I have several colleagues who are writing in these areas as well with the same kind of desire to put in people's hands uh, things that they can use and, and at the same time put them in a position to make sense out of what they're hearing. Yeah. Now, you've just contributed to a, a volume five authors, I believe. That's right. Related to Jesus and some of the issues that are out there in the historical research field. Uh, talk a little bit about that book. And is this an example of the kind of conversation that you're calling for? And what in spe- uh, specifically did you say vis-a-vis these other contributors? Well, this book was called The Historical Jesus Five Views. And it ran the whole spectrum from someone who didn't believe that Jesus existed uh, all the way to someone who doesn't think you should talk about the historical Jesus to do different models 
uh, non-conservative models of, of doing historical Jesus work, one a little more politically oriented, the other more slightly more religiously oriented and connected with Jewish backgrounds, and then I represented the evangelical view. These volumes do sort of a job of modeling the dialogue. The, the way they go is you write an essay and someone writes a response, but because there's no sir rejoined or a response back it really isn't a conversation it just kind of sets the table so you can see the range of what the conversation is so that can be very very helpful what I tried to do in the book was to make the case now remember first of all that when you're dealing with historical Jesus you're only dealing with that which you feel like you can corroborate in terms of evidence so you can't use everything something that just appears once is not usable that kind of thing so the question was, could you build a credible portrait of Jesus off a corroborative model? And we tried to argue that you can see that Jesus presents himself as a very exalted messianic figure who sees himself at the center of the program of God and who ultimately claims that he will be completely vindicated by God and given a position at his right hand, which in the context of Judaism is a revolutionary kind of thought that tells you who Jesus really is. And In other words, you can get pretty far down the road. Um, even using historical Jesus corroborative standards, it's kind of like having one hand tied behind your back, um, in presenting who Jesus is. It's not the complete biblical Jesus, uh, but it gets you pretty far down the road there. And so for someone who doesn't believe the Bible, but who wants to know about Jesus, it's a whole other way in to have the conversation. Now, you mentioned a while ago that uh, in your background you have Jewish forefathers and mothers. Talk a little bit about your interest in Messianic Judaism. I know you've been an important uh, discussion partner in that movement. Yeah, I serve on the board of Chosen People Ministries and have been on the board now, I guess, slightly over 10 years. Um, I, as I said, my family was Jewish, but they ceased to be practicing Jews before I was born. I actually didn't even know I was ethnically Jewish until I was in my teens. And one day, my uncle, who decided that this cutting off thing was silly, decided to show up one day to see an all-star game in Houston, and we happened to live in Houston, so my brother hosted his brother with his three boys, and it didn't take long when they started talking about synagogue, et cetera, put two and two together and figure out, oh, that's interesting. And so uh, so from there, I discovered that I was Jewish on both sides of my family and what, and a little bit about what had happened. And I used to go in the summers and visit this one family uh, just about every summer, which means that when I would go, to spend time with them, usually a couple of weeks, uh, a couple of weekends included, I would go to synagogue with them. Um, and so um, so it gave me an exposure to Jewish faith and, and Jewish tradition and Jewish belief and the very corporate communal family almost structure that uh, Judaism has. It's something I've very much come to appreciate about the Jewish faith. And and so it launched me into um, being curious about the heritage. And then when I decided to go into to seminary, teach, that produced some awkwardness initially for my relatives because here I was representing something that Judaism traditionally reacts against. Um, but we have pretty much sorted through a lot of that, and I still have dialogue and contact with my cousins. Mm-hmm. Is anti-Semitism still a problem for the Christian church? I think it is. I, I think that there is a lot of misunderstanding about Judaism, Judaism and its origins, even even the way in which Jesus challenged Judaism in his ministry. You know, Jesus and the earliest disciples went into the synagogue to preach Jesus as the promised Messiah and as the one who was the culmination of everything that they had hoped for. And nothing about that has really changed. So uh, 
so so there's that dimension of it and then there's a huge history that developed as the church and Judaism moved apart that has led to a lot of recrimination against Jews historically of course the most visible reflection of that is everything that happened in association with World War II and the Holocaust which was probably the great anti-Semitic moment but it was one of many in our history and uh, and every now and then you see anti-Semitism begin to rear its head in conversations particularly political conversations today so yes I think it's something that we do constantly have to deal with you know sometimes when someone lives completely differently than most of us, uh, that tends to produce an effort to distance them and to marginalize them. And I think that's part of why you see it. I want to go back to your work as the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. A lot of our listeners will never have heard of that organization. So tell us what it is and kind of what its purpose is. How, how can it be of help to the church? Well, the Evangelical Theological Society is a scholarly organization made up of people with theology degrees, master's degrees, and doctorates. Um, who do, most of whom teach in various Christian schools. Not all of them do. There are a lot of pastors who belong. It's over 4,000 members nationwide. And basically we get together annually and regionally to discuss issues of theological importance. And there's a lot of reflection and interaction that happens across denominational lines usually um, at those meetings. So it's one of those rare opportunities where you kind of literally have a tent uh, an evangelical tent in which there are conversations that are taking place that don't otherwise normally take place. So from that standpoint, it's very helpful to the church in that it helps people to interact with one another. It gives leaders of various evangelical um, denominations and strands an opportunity to get to know one another, hear each other directly and not just speak about one another, etc., that builds some level of of appreciation, mutual appreciation for one another in the midst of a real theological conversation, dialogue, and sometimes disagreement. Now, you wrote a book. Uh, I think it was based on your presidential address That's at correct. ETS, calling for a kind of unity uh, without compromise of That's our right. deepest convictions. Uh, why did you write that book, and what response uh, did you get to it? Well, it was called uh, Purpose-Driven Theology, kind of, kind of purpose-directed theology. It was built off the purpose-driven model of Rick Warren. And what I was trying to say was there's a way to have theological dialogue and debate. And one, we need a place where we can have it, where, where the doctrinal d- d- distinctions are not so incredibly tight that you don't get a variety of voices speaking to one another that represent evangelicalism. And that the ETS only has two doctrinal points currently. It's an inerrancy point and a point about the Trinity. That's it. We don't even have a soteriological statement, which some people think is rather strange. But but nonetheless, the point was is, to, is that the belief was that if you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and believed in the Trinity, you were pretty far down the road theologically in terms of commitments. Um, and so it will, that would all sort itself out. So, um, so the point of the organization and the point of the book was to say there's a way to have and there's a place where we need to be able to have and sort out these disagreements and to do so with a sense of prioritization about what's really central about what we disagree about when the disagreements are really substantive and what are more peripheral, what I like to call family disputes, where you recognize, yeah, I disagree, but the disagreement is really among, you know, brothers and sisters and cousins. It's not, you know, it's not the Hatfields and the McCoys. Yeah. And, and so if you, can, if you can learn how to sort that out and make those judgments, learn how to prioritize what's important in your theology, then your theology has a purpose-drivenness to it in terms of the way it functions. 
And I, I think the tendency some conservatives have is because they believe the Bible is God's word and it's all true, they think that anything that they believe about it is also all true. But then the problem comes when they sit across someone who believes that the Bible is all true, but the all true that they believe doesn't match the all true that I believe, then we got a problem. And so how do you sort that out? And so this was a book attempting to appeal for a good way of sorting that out and having that dialogue in a way that's mutually beneficial and not destructive. Now, both you and I have been involved for a long time in theological education and preparing God-called men and women for the service of the Church of Jesus Christ. And I'm intrigued by your idea that it would be a, a good plan if evangelical theologians, theological schools of various denominations and backgrounds uh, but within uh, the compass of a true evangelical commitment, could work together and plant a seminary in, say, a place like New York City. Now, that's, that's just a fantastic idea, probably impractical. But, <laughs> but to talk about that. Why do you think that would be a good idea? Well, I think if you look at the model of the, of the Bible, you will see that Paul, in particular, modeled taking the gospel to really key cultural hubs. I mean, the goal of the book of Acts is to take the gospel to Rome. Well, Rome is, is in one sense, an ancient equivalent for what New York is, not just to the United States, but to the world. It is a financial capital. It is a hub of, of intellectual activity that happens in the Northeast that radiates out across the world. Um, and there is no substantive evangelical presence, educational presence, uh, in the city. There's, there are some colleges there are a few small seminaries, but nothing that represents uh, uh, the, the swath of the evangelical movement that is so influential in the rest of the United States. And I just think it makes sense for schools to combine to make this happen. I think it would make two statements simultaneously, and there's one practical, practical element to it. One is to plan a school in New York would be very expensive. No one school could probably afford to do it. But if schools share the burden, then it might become possible. The second thing is, is that if a lot of schools band together to do it, it would be, it would make a statement about the nature of evangelicalism that these schools, despite their differences, are able to cooperate in putting together a school in, in this kind of location to have this kind of representation. And third, I think it allows the possibility for each school to bring some of their better professors um, to New York to teach, and so you could actually create a, a an all-star team or a, a, maybe dream team is a little too wrong, the wrong term, but an, an all-star team of teachers who really reflect the best of what is out there in evangelicalism and the various strands that exist. And I think that would be healthy. And that's actually what the New York area would need because, yeah. because intellectually, um, on, on the other side of things, it's, it's some of the best and brightest who are out there. Yeah. You know, in the 1960s, Dr. Carl F. H. Henry called for a major research university that would be a thoroughly Christian in its commitments and its outreach. That never really happened, though there have been some efforts along that line. Uh, so maybe uh, in the 21st century, uh, your idea of a evangelical, top-flight uh, theological school planted in the the culture center and capital of our country, New York City, uh, might might be something the Lord can bring about. And we can pray that he'll touch somebody's heart, uh, maybe somebody who's listening even now, uh, and feel that this is really uh, something that God would have us do. It would have to be done right. It would have to be done with the proper cooperative spirit among the schools. It would have to really, it have to have this prioritization that I'm talking about, where there's a sense of what's really central 
and then where are the peripheral discussions amongst us, or, or it couldn't be done. But but with that in place, I think it has the potential to make a really uh, terrific kind of statement. You know, I find it ironic in, in L.A. we've got multiple institutions that function uh, almost across the entire evangelical spectrum, uh, all making impact in their way. But in New York, there's silence. Yeah. Well, I have one more question for you. Uh, I love talking to you because you know so much. You're so knowledgeable and you read so much and you write so much. It's just wonderful. Um, and sometimes when we encounter people like you, we sort of put you on a pedestal. Um, but I want to ask you a personal question. Uh, have there been periods of doubt uh, in your own life, uh, in your own investigation and study of the scriptures? And how did you get through those tough times? Well, I, I think I live in a perpetual uh, world of, of self-reflection and inquiry. You can't do the kind of work I do in apologetics and not think through what it is, that it, where the challenge is coming from on the other side. And the goal isn't simply to just react, oh, that's wrong, there's nothing to it, et cetera. No, the, you've got to really seriously process that. So that does occasionally produce going, you know, that's really a pretty good point. Um, and, and I think what it is, what it has forced me to do is one, it's made me very careful about how I talk about people who think differently than I do. It's made me more sensitive in that regard. I've tried to re- respect in a, in a healthy kind of way a person who thinks differently than I do, uh, about, about religion, even though I may think they are dead wrong and that there are huge consequences for, the, for thinking that way. So that's one element that's done. I think the other thing that it's done is it drives you back to this distinction that Scripture is constantly talking about between the way the world tends to see things based upon the standards that it has and the way in which God is seen in the Scripture, which tends to say that sometimes man thinking in his own way and on his own wiles doesn't quite have it right. And so I always remind myself that God has little surprises and those surprises are usually those little things that are, seem a little out of whack, what we're not normally used to, what we don't normally hear, around which sometimes God makes a big point because it ultimately points to his uniqueness. And I think as long as we keep that in front of us in one way or another, um, then, 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 then doubt actually turns into reflection, and then from reflection you kind of work your way back to uh, this biblical orientation and this in this portrait of a living, functioning God who sometimes doesn't, he doesn't meet our expectations and he doesn't run by our expectations either. That's great. Dr. Darrell Bach, thank you for your uh, work for Christ and his kingdom all around the world, your scholarship, and thank you for being with us today on the Beeson Podcast. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. We welcome your feedback, suggestions, and support. Beeson Divinity School is an evangelical, interdenominational divinity school training men and women for service in the Church of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.